So thank you very much indeed for joining us for this edition of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm an associate editor uh, at Heart uh, from Cambridge, UK. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Rachel Forsyth, who is a vascular surgeon from the University of Edinburgh. And she is the lead author on a paper recently published in Heart entitled Monitoring the Biological Activity of Abdominal Aortic Aneurysms Beyond Ultrasound. And the other authors on the paper are David Newby and Jenny Robson. Thanks very much indeed for joining us today, Rachel. Thank you. Um, I really thought this was an interesting paper. Uh, I think the, the audience of Heart would be really keen to discuss it a little bit more with you. We don't see too many papers about aortic aneurysm in, in heart, but of course it is a vascular disease. And what's the incidence and how many people are affected in the UK with this, with this disease? Um, well, the incidence of um, aneurysm disease um, is up to about 5% of men um, over the age of 65. And in fact, there's evidence to say that um, it's even greater in, in men over 75 years old. It represents actually the 13th most common cause of death in adults, which is probably quite surprising. Um, so it's quite an important health burden. Okay. And um, are there any risk factors that are well known to be associated Yes, um, there are quite a few that we've identified. There's patient-related risk factors and some modifiable and unmodifiable. So um, it's most commonly um, found in males over the age of 65. Yeah. Um, over sort of over 80 percent, maybe 80 to 90 percent of people with aneurysms are smokers or have smoked in the past. And also, it's associated. The incidence is associated with hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. But interestingly, the risk of expansion and rupture shares some of these characteristics, but also we've got other um, risk factors that affect your risk of disease progression and rupture. And so that's what we focus on in our imaging. And um, in terms of common diseases, atherosclerosis, I guess, is, is often found in patients with aneurysm disease. Are the risk factors identical or are the, presumably age, sex and smoking exactly. are common to both? But the, presumably there are some differences there that you've noted. Exactly. So they share similar risk factors, but um, almost manifest in, in different ways. So as you mentioned, smoking is a big risk factor, for instance, of aneurysm disease and atherosclerosis. So yeah. characteristically, our patients are smokers and have coexisting atherosclerotic disease in the coronary arteries and the cerebral arteries. Yeah. Um, and similar to atherosclerosis, smoking affects your risk of aneurysm expansion and rupture. So that's the big one that's shared between the two. Um, there, in terms of the pathological processes mm. that um, are shared between aneurysm disease and atherosclerosis, um, they're similar processes, but they manifest in different ways. And I think the most striking difference is the location of the disease processes. Okay. In aneurysm disease, um, these um, pathological processes are found mainly in the media and adventitia, whereas in atherosclerosis, it's a, a disease of intimal, intimal problems. Um, and clinically, uh, they manifest themselves um, in aneurysm disease and we have dilatation leading to vessel rupture, whether, whereas in atherosclerosis, it's a disease of stenosis and occlusion. So I think that's an important pathological difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's where we, the imaging comes into play. So we, you know, we can investigate imaging modalities that are used in atherosclerotic disease, but with a caveat that um, they're not exactly the same processes and manifest in different ways. So there are similarities, but also important differences, I see. And just for the, I guess for my own education, we're talking about abdominal aortic aneurysm here and the definition of an aneurysm being present is when you have dilatation more than 30 millimeters is that right That's correct, three yeah. centimeters okay exactly. and in terms of um, widespread screening in the uk and elsewhere this is done as far as i understand by ultrasound generally 
That's correct. What kind of age is that started at in, in high-risk patients? In the UK, actually, population screening was introduced about 15 years ago. Yeah. And all men are invited at their 65th birthday to come for a screening ultrasound. Okay. And that's been shown, the screening programme has been shown to dramatically decrease the mortality associated with aneurysm disease. Um, and the effects can be seen up to and, and beyond 10 years. So it's targeting men over the age of 65. But interestingly, so women aren't targeted by screening at the minute, but we know that females represent a high-risk group if they have an aneurysm. So that's something we might have to think about in the future. Is there a reason why that's the case? Is it just a historic hangover of less enlightened times, or, or is it the prospective studies hadn't been done when the, when the guidelines were set up? Oh, because then the incidence of aneurysm disease is four times more common in males than females. And so to screen um, enough women, it, you know, it wouldn't be cost effective to screen enough women to get aneurysm, to detect the aneurysms. But, you know, we have to bear in mind that females who have aneurysms um, are actually represent a high risk group for rupture. We think they might rupture at um, slightly smaller diameters than their male counterparts. Okay, so we've got a fairly common disease and we've got uh, a cheap and effective uh, way of at least measuring the size of the aneurysm. Exactly. But you were, you were hinting earlier on that there are factors that mean that uh, simply the baseline size is not the only factor that determines whether an aneurysm expands and perhaps expands to rupture. And this is where some of your research comes in. Exactly. So as you say, the surveillance strategies are based on uh, measuring the maximum AP diameter and the surveillance is all based on the tenet that increasing diameter increases your rupture risk, which is not unsurprising um, as the vessel wall becomes larger and thinner and the, the strength of the vessel wall decreases and therefore predisposes to rupture. Yeah. However, we know it's only part of the picture. There are studies that have shown that um, maybe up to one in five of ruptured aneurysms are smaller than the threshold that we consider um, for treating aneurysms. So 5.5 centimetres um, we consider repairing, but we know that a significant proportion of ruptured aneurysms are less than that. So there must be something else at play here. The, the growth rate of aneurysms isn't a linear, um, isn't seen as a linear thing. Uh, aneurysms tend to grow in fits and starts, um, described as a staccato growth um, pattern. So in any individual patient, we can't say your aneurysm is going to grow at this rate. Yeah. We can say based on population studies, and what we think might happen, but not on an individual patient level. So I guess that's where we're starting to bring in other methods. That's why there's a need for other ways of predicting and stratifying aneurysms into higher and lower risk patients. Um, and that's where our imaging techniques come in, looking at the biology behind the aneurysm rather than just the morphology. And do you want to um, run through some of the the main modalities that have been suggested? I mean, we have to say that none of these have entered um, routine clinical practice yet, but... Uh, your review starts off, uh, I think, with a discussion about MR imaging. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we talk about molecular imaging um, using MR and PET techniques. So uh, we're looking to get functional information about the aneurysms, assess the biology to combine with the morphological information and also the known clinical risk factors. Yeah. So we started off by discussing MRI. Um, MRI is widely used in clinical practice and is safe. Um, and our molecular approach to using MRI was using a smart contrast agent called ultra-small superparamagnetic particles of iron oxide. So it's a nanoparticle um, which evades um, uh, the reticular endothelial system and persists in the blood pool long enough for us to be able to um, do an MRI scan and, and pick it up. This is a marker we think of, of inflammatory activity within. Exactly. Within so it's taken up by tissue resident macrophages and is therefore like a surrogate marker of inflammatory activity. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've used this before in a small group of asymptomatic patients with aneurysms. 
and it's been shown to identify and track macrophage activity and in fact um, can uh, increase uptake of this USPIO contrast agent has been shown to be associated with um, significantly increased risk of expansion. Okay, and you're leading at the moment a, a large trial, aren't you, in Scotland? Um, Absolutely. Aiming to, uh, we're looking at 350 patients, I think? That's um, right, multi-centre study, 350 patients with aneurysms, um, and the, the, our outcome is to look at the added value of this um, sort of technique. So we're not saying this replaces the current way of um, uh, evaluating aneurysm disease, but yeah. we add value to that. Okay. And then you move on in the review again to target macrophages, but uh, this time using PET imaging. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so looking at nuclear medicine techniques um, using various radio tracers, there are lots of tracers that have been used in the clinical arena for many years, um, but we're in the cardiac and the vascular studies looking um, at assessing macrophages in different ways. Um, perhaps the most commonly um, known um, tracer is 18FFDG, the glucose analogue, um, which can detect macrophages and has been used in atherosclerosis. Um, it's been uh, investigated in aneurysm disease with some sort of conflicting ideas as to its mm. benefit. There are lots of benefits of using FDG. It can pick up areas of um, biological activity and inflammation. But conversely, there's some drawbacks um, that may mean it's not um, going to be particularly useful in the clinical arena. Yeah. Um, it of course, it's non-specific, isn't it, for, exactly. for inflammation? Yeah. Exactly. So that's FDG. It has been looked at. But the one we're particularly interested in is 18F sodium fluoride. It's been a bone tracer for many years um, and can be considered as a novel marker of active vascular calcification by identifying really areas of evolving um, calcification. So this is another focused imaging technique where you're actually, uh, with a knowledge of the underlying biology or pathobiology, you're targeting the process that you're uh, potentially interested absolutely, in. Absolutely. Okay. Are you the, the only group to be looking at uh, sodium fluoride of others published in this area in aneurysms, or is this a, a sort of novel approach? It's a relatively novel approach. I actually just really found out that a paper has been very recently published looking at sodium fluoride uptake in aneurysms and in non-aneurysmal aorta, and they didn't um, find a particularly um, great benefit of using sodium fluoride tracer. But the, the reason we're doing it is it actually stems from some of the coronary studies um, undertaken by Professor Newby's group mm. that incidentally dis um, discovered that sodium fluoride was taken up quite significantly in areas of atherosclerotic and aneurysmal aorta. Yes. Um, so that's led on to us doing this study of patients with aneurysm disease. And you've got a similar kind of study to the Mars study, haven't you, going where you've, again, a prospective sodium exactly. fluoride PET study um, over a, a few hundred patients again, is it? Well, the target is 100 patients. Oh. We're currently still recruiting for that. And we, we are recruiting patients from the Mars study. So all patients who have a sodium fluoride PET scan will already have had an MRI scan with USPIO, okay. which I think will be a very interesting slant. We'll be able to sort of compare the areas of inflammation and macrophage activity with microcalcification. Mm. But yes, essentially... Um, patients with asymptomatic aneurysms who are undergoing screening at present, they have a PET scan with sodium fluoride, and the outcome measure for that is really expansion. It's not powered to have an outcome of uh, rupture, and it's more of an exploratory study. Hopefully, you should prove interesting. Well, that's fascinating. Um, anything else you wanted to say about where we are with aneurysm disease in terms of therapy? Is, is endovascular therapy um, increasing, decreasing, open surgery increasing, decreasing, or how, how are things going? As a cardiologist, I must say I'm out of the loop a little bit here. 
Oh yeah, endovascular surgery is certainly the most common method of repair, um, repairing aneurysms in the elective setting, particularly in the US. Right. And the advent of EVAR and sophisticated technologies has decreased the mortality associated with elective repair. But I think the important thing for us is that rupture, um, the, the outcomes um, and the morbidity associated with rupture has really not decreased substantially over the last few decades despite really? intravascular technology. Okay. And I guess the mainstay of surveillance um, and aneurysm management should be to prevent rupture. Um, so that's why we need to have other ways of stratifying those at high risk of rupture. Okay, well, thanks very much indeed, Rachel, for your uh, time today. Uh, this is an open access free paper in heart, I see, and it should be available on the website now. So thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast.